When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your corn, new wine and oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks in the land that he swore to your ancestors to give to you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are, how can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them 
until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. Do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God, who is among you, is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you, little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once, or the wild animals will multiply around you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will give their kings into your hand, and you will wipe out their names from under heaven. No one will be able to stand up against you. You will destroy them. The images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not cover the silver and gold on them, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction. Regard it as a vile and utterly detested, for it is set apart for destruction. Now, I don't know if anybody here has ever come across a situation where you have to keep a house tidy which has got small children in that house. I think it's fair to say it's a little bit of a losing battle. Now, in our house, there are certain food groups which have been banned. Top of that list is couscous. Now, couscous is actually very good for my children and they both quite enjoy eating it. That's not why it's been banned. It's been banned because of the mess it leaves once they get down from the table. It is unbelievable. And the problem with couscous is it's so small that it takes forever to pick up. Now, usually, once they've finished, I have a quick look around the kitchen and think, right, I'm going to have to get rid of you. So I banish both kids out of the kitchen and start tidying up. It usually takes me quite a while to transform this room from somewhat of a post-apocalyptic wasteland to some form of normality. I finish and I go and think, right, where are the kids? They're quite quiet. Walk through into the lounge and hey presto, the lounge has now been destroyed. There's cushions everywhere, there's Lego bricks everywhere. And I always start by thinking, you know what, I'm a good parent. I'm going to teach them some responsibility here. You made this mess, you tidy it up. But then after policing several battles over who should pick up which Lego brick and I'm tired, I don't want to do it, you just go, do you know what, I'm just going to do it myself. Go away, go upstairs, I'll tidy the room. So you then spend another 10, 15 minutes tidying the lounge. You know what happens when you finish in the lounge. You go upstairs, it's gone quiet again. Suddenly they've got their energy back and they've destroyed their bedroom. It just goes on and on and on. Sometimes it really does feel like there is little point in trying to tidy up until they've gone to bed. The same is exactly true in our lives. We can come to church and present a lovely, clean image of ourselves in one small area of our lives. But if we let sin run right in the rest of our lives unchecked, then we're going to be fighting a losing battle. Now, as we explore Deuteronomy 7 this morning, we're going to see that the, the instructions which Moses gives to the Israelites, preparing them for a physical battle against earthly enemies, it's just as relevant for us today in a spiritual battle against sin. I want to highlight three things that the passage has to say to us this morning about sin. Firstly, what we should do when we come across sin. Secondly, why we should do that. And finally, how we should do that. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses addressing the Israelites on the edge of the Promised Land. It's really one long sermon from Moses. Don't worry, I'm not going to be going for 40 chapters worth, but... 
Today, when we get to chapter 7, we'll see that Moses really zones in on what the Israelites should do when they actually enter the promised land, what's expected of them. If you look with me at verses 1 and 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Gigashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Just from here on in, I'm going to call them the Ites because we have got limited time this morning. So, Seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Now that's the translation that's used in the NIV. In the ESV, which is the Bible I usually use, it says this in verse 2, you are to devote them to complete destruction and show them no mercy. Moses has left no room for misinterpretation here, has he? He doesn't say, do your best to get rid of them. Round up the real troublemakers, just look out for those ones. He tells the Israelites, devote the enemy to complete destruction. The Israelites are instructed to make no compromises. They're not to live alongside the current occupants. They're not to intermarry with them. They're not to serve their gods or even have pity on them. The same is no less true for us today. When it comes to sin, we are to make absolutely no compromises. So the answer to our first question is pretty clear. What should we do when we encounter sin? we should devote it to complete destruction and show it no mercy. Now, saying that Christians should do that is not really a hold-the-front-page headline, is it? I think we all know that Christians should really try and avoid sin. The problem is that as Christians, we tend to view sin a lot like my children view puddles. This Christmas, we went for a walk on a really cold, clear day. It was beautiful, but it had been really wet in the run-up to it, so there were some massive puddles around. We were staying away from home, so um, they were in trainers rather than usual wellies. So as soon as we got out of the car, I said to both of them, I know you want to, but you can't jump in puddles this morning. You'll get wet, cold feet and you'll be miserable. I had a quick think about it and I couldn't really see any grey areas on this rule and I couldn't really see any misinterpretations. Obviously I was wrong. Um, the walk took us down this big hill. And then once at the bottom, you had to turn around and walk back up again. The trouble was, at the bottom of this big hill was a stream. Now, I saw Grace's eyes light up when she saw this stream, and she started running towards it. So I shouted, puddles and streams. You're not to jump in either. <laughs> she kept going towards it with a big grin on her face, and she was holding one foot over the puddle like this. I went, Grace, don't. She said, I'm not going in it. I'm just touching the top of it with my trainer. Oh, okay, and then she decided, okay, I won't go in it, I'll go over it. So I jumped from side to side. My attention was diverted by the other child for a few seconds, and when I looked back, Grace's face had changed to that, I've got wet, cold feet and I'm miserable face. She wasn't going to admit she'd done anything wrong, of course. Now, we know that as Christians, we should strive to avoid sin. The problem is that all too often we skirt around the edge of it. We want to see how close we can get to sin without committing ourselves. Because part of us still enjoys sin, we don't destroy it completely. We let it stick around on the outskirts of our lives. We kid ourselves that it'll be fine, but in moments of weakness, sin will slither out of the corners and come and pounce on us. I don't think Grace set out to actually break my rule. She just wanted to see how close she could get to a puddle without actually going in it. 
If we treat sin in the same way, then in the same way, we'll always end up getting wet feet. If we show sin any mercy or give it any quarter, then to use the words of verse 16, it will be a snare to you. If you know that there's something you do in your life which leads you into temptation, then do all you can to avoid it. Don't just think you'll be alright if you go right up to the edge of doing it without doing the act itself, because soon enough you will fall in. Seek to devote sin to complete destruction. If you struggle with gossip, then don't sit in a room full of people who are gossiping, thinking, do you know what, it'll be alright if I just laugh at their jokes as long as I don't contribute myself, because soon enough you'll get drawn into contributing. If you struggle with looking at stuff you shouldn't on your screen, then install some kind of accountability software so other people can always see what you're looking at. I know that these are two slightly simplistic examples of how we fight sin, and I know that fighting sin is no small task. In the same way that the odds were stacked against the Israelites, they had seven nations, all larger and stronger than they were, that they had to defeat. It's no small task. We have a huge battle on our hands as Christians, and one which we will have to continue fighting every single day until we go to glory. Sadly, if you're anything like me, it's a battle where you will see defeat often. But that doesn't mean we give up. God is a holy God and he cannot abide sin of any form in his presence. If we're his people, then we must view sin in the same way. So what should we do when we encounter sin? I really can't say it enough. We should devote it to complete destruction and show it no mercy. Now before I go on to look at why we should treat sin like this, I think it is important that I address a question or an issue that this passage does raise. When we talk about devoting sin to destruction, it seems like the right thing to do, doesn't it? But here in this passage, Moses is telling the Israelites to devote a whole city to destruction, several cities, a whole land to destruction, to show them no mercy. Can you imagine if the UN heard that in a pre-war briefing now? They'd be horrified. There'd be all sorts of stuff going on, alarm bells ringing. So why is it okay for God to act in this way? Well, you could begin to answer that question by focusing on the wickedness of the ites. They trace all the way back to Ham, the son of Noah. They would have heard from their fathers the great things that God done, had done for them to rescue them from the flood. 400 years passed since then, and not only do they not repent in that time, they grow in wickedness. This is a people who practice child sacrifice, sorcery. They worship man-made gods. This is a wicked nation and God is right to judge them. The thing is, the truth goes even further than this. The more I've reflected on the question of God's judgment in this passage and how it makes me feel, the more I've realised how human-centred my view of God is. Consider it this way. Think of any good gospel and explanation that you've heard or that you might have used for yourself. I suggest it starts something like this. God made the world and God made man. We had a perfect relationship with him and everything was good. But then, God uh, then man turns his back on God. He basically says to God, I don't want you to be in charge. I wish you were dead. The consequence of this is that we go from living under God's blessing to under his curse. Man is now coming under the judgment of God. This is the state now of all humankind. So on the one hand, we profess that the consequence of sin is death and judgment. And yet we see it in this passage and we start to ask, what's God doing? The truth is we've all rebelled against God. 
And we all deserve to come under his judgment. It's only because of his grace that we're not all destroyed. God created this world full of beauty for us to enjoy, to enjoy it with him as our rightful king. We respond by turning our back on him. It's testimony to God's love and grace that he didn't just destroy us all and start again. Instead, instead, he gives us the chance to repent. We're so quick sometimes to ask, why does God judge people? When really the question we should be asking is, why does he spare anyone? So back to our main three questions then. We've looked at what we're supposed to do as sin, but now we need to consider our motivation, why we should do this. When we talk about waging war on sin, there's a big danger that we can think that we're earning God's blessing somehow. We can think, if I obey God and do what he says, he will love and accept me. Well, verse 6 turns this completely on its head. It starts with the word for, which is absolutely crucial, because it means that he's going to explain everything in the last five verses, the motivation for doing that. So all the stuff he said about destroying the nations that are currently in the land. So look at verse 6. For you are my people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. If you take one thing away from church this morning, please take this. We do not make war with sin in an attempt to earn God's favour. God gives us his favour. He rescues us and treats us as his treasured possession. He sets us free and sets us aside to be holy and his people. And in recognition and love of that fact, we attempt to try and wage war on sin. We fight it. If you're a Christian here this morning, then you are God's treasured possession. Let that truth just wash over you for a second. We spend our lives trying to earn the acceptance of other people. So much of what we do is motivated by earning that acceptance. We want people to think we're competent at our jobs that we're friendly. We want people to think that we're good parents, that we're lovely. We want people to think that we're a godly member of the church. Even when we are, we, we expend so much energy on all those things, on being accepted, and yet here we are reminded that God, the God who made and upholds the universe, the God who made all things and who controls all things, the mighty warrior king who sits on his throne in heaven has chosen us as his treasured possession. And you know, he does it while we're still living in sin. He doesn't say stop sinning and then you can be mine. He says you're mine, now stop sinning. The truth gets even more incredible when we go on and look at verses seven and eight. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to his ancestors. God doesn't choose us based on our strength. He chooses us based on his love. God didn't choose Israel because they were the biggest or the strongest. He chose them because he loved them and he swore to Abraham a long time ago that he would make his descendants his people. Our motivation for why we fight sin is absolutely crucial. Look at these two different phrases. So on the one hand, if I obey God, he will accept me. Compared to, 
I am accepted, therefore I want to obey God. Now on the face of it, there's only really a very small difference between those two phrases and actually both people are obeying God, so does it really matter? Well to answer that question, I think we need to take it a little further and change the notion of obedience to flowers and God for wives. So two men buy flowers for their wives. The first one hands them over rather begrudgingly and says, I got you these flowers. Um, I didn't really want to, but I know that as your husband, I have a certain duty to do that kind of thing. I want you to know they're expensive, but that's fine because I now expect you to get me a gift of equal or greater value. (laughs) The second man says, I bought you these flowers because being married to you has enriched my life beyond measure. I love you and I wanted to find a way of showing you how much I love you. Now one of those wives is probably going to take that bunch of flowers and beat her husband to death with them. (laughs) If you're trying to earn God's favour by not sinning, then you're completely wasting your time. It just looks ugly to God. God wants your obedience, but more than that, he wants your heart. He wants us to obey him because we love him, not that we feel we need to earn his favour. When we grasp this fact, it changes us completely. I think one of the biggest gripes the rest of the world has with Christians is that we have some kind of holier-than-thou attitude and we're judgmental to other people. If we think that our acceptance from God is based on the fact that we can keep the rules, then we've got every right to have a holier-than-thou attitude. But it's just not true, is it? That's not how we're accepted by God. Through no merit of our own, God chose us to be his treasured possession. Understand this, there is nothing you brought to the table, which means the only thing you have left to boast in is how good God is. So to summarise so far, as a Christian, we should devote sin to complete destruction. We should show it no mercy, and we should do it because we are God's treasured possession. The final question remains then, how do we do this? How do we fight sin? Now, over the years, I've read numerous articles about how we should fight sin. There's some really helpful stuff out there. Unfortunately, there's some really unhelpful stuff as well, though. I've come across a number of authors who seem to suggest that they struggled for a long time with one particular sin. And then one day, they simply prayed, God, take this sin away from me. Win this fight for me. And that was that. Now, don't get me wrong, God is a mighty God who's in control of all things, and this is absolutely possible. However, is it how God normally works? Well, the Bible tells us no. Let me put it this way. Does God say to the Israelites, the promised land is over there waiting for you? There were some massive enemies over there, some giants in walled cities, but I didn't want you to face any of them, so I've destroyed them all for you. All you have to do is march in and take what's yours. No. God assures the Israelites that he will give them the victory, but they have to fight. The same is true for us. If we go to God when we're struggling with sin and say, please take this away from me, win win the fight for me, normally he won't. However, if we go to God and say, I've got a gigantic sin in my life that keeps defeating me, when temptation comes, give me strength. Provide a way for me to escape cut the enemy down to a size that I can bear. He will give us what we've asked. The expectation is that in his strength, we fight. 
My father-in-law had a great way of putting it. He used to quote Cromwell, trust in God and keep your powder dry. You see, we are absolutely to trust God, but we are not to sit down and expect some free ride. God wants us to know victory over sin, but without a battle, there can be no victory. So the first how is that in God's strength, we fight. For a second answer, let's look at verses 17 to 19. It says this, You may say to yourselves, These nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples who you now fear. What does Moses tell the people to do here when they feel discouraged by the size of the enemy? They are to look to what God has already done and to remember who he is. The Israelites were to look back at the most crucial part of their history when God took them and freed them from slavery in Egypt. We, on the other hand, are to look back to the most crucial part of our history when God freed us from slavery to sin and death. We look to the cross. There is always a danger when we describe God that we do it in an unbalanced way. On the one hand, you get people who focus too much on God's wrath. They highlight the fact that God is a judging God who will pour wrath down on those who oppose him. On the other hand, you have people who focus solely on the fact that God is a God of love, that he will accept people. When we look at the cross, we can't make this mistake because you can see that both those attributes of God are clearly displayed. God hates sin. He absolutely hates it and he will punish it. But at the same time, he is a loving God who loves us so much that he gave us his son to die in our place. The more we dwell on the cross, the more we see that God is both holy and loving. The more we dwell on the cross, the more we see how much God was willing to pay so that we could be his treasured possession. One writer puts it like this. Those who understand the cross increasingly see their sin as God does and therefore begin to feel about sin as God does. We begin to mourn for it and hate it. In other words, at the cross, God becomes larger and we become smaller. Only in the light of my smallness can I feel overawed by the means he used to save me, his cross. The world tells us that, the, that sin is something which can be enjoyed, that it's an indulgence, a harmless treat. It can be so easy to believe this lie. That is until we look at the cross. The cross shows us the real consequence of sin. It's not harmless. It's a matter of life and death. Even more staggering than this, the cross showed us how, just how much God was willing to pay so that we could become his. Jesus came and lived the life we couldn't, a life of love and full obedience, and he died in our place. Brothers and sisters, if there is a sin in your life which you are struggling to defeat, that keeps rearing its head, 
then look to the cross. The cross shows us we are not fighting to earn God's favour. Instead, it gives us the courage to fight sin because we already have his favour. He's already won the victory for us. The, Christian sh- uh, the, the cross shows us that we are his treasured possession. <coughs> Allow me to finish by highlight- highlighting a phrase which comes up 15 times in this chapter. The Lord your God. 15 times Moses says, the Lord your God. He could have said God, or he could have said the Lord, and we still would have been able to understand everything that he talked about. But Moses wants us to understand something which completely changes how we approach God. He is our God. He's not some distant God who doesn't care about us or our lives. He is ours. He chose us as his treasured possession. The God who formed the universe and sustains all life. He is yours. Christian, every morning when you wake up this week and every night when you go to sleep, remind yourself that the Lord is your God. If you're struggling in a battle with sin, then take comfort because in the words of this song, as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me for I am his and he is mine bought with the precious blood of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh, that we would know that we are your treasured possession, Lord. Lord, that we would know how much you paid for us to be yours. Lord, if we truly understood that, it would change the way that we live forever, Lord. We would strive day and night to live in the way that you've set out for us, Lord. Because you did so much for us, Lord. We don't fight for a God who won't fight for us, Lord. We fight for a God who gave everything for us, who died for us. Jesus, we thank you so much for the cross. We pray that we would live our lives in the shadow of the cross. And we pray that it would Give us the courage we need to fight sin for you, Lord. Not because we need to earn your favour, but because we already have it. Lord, thank you that we are your treasured possession. Amen.